Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our international correspondent, Zofia Zviglinska. How's it going, Zofia? Yeah, going great. Great to be on again. Yeah, it's good to have you. This week, we're going to be talking about why luxury watch prices keep dropping, even though there's lots of demand for luxury watches. We'll hear from Zofia about the way brands are approaching Black Friday this year. And then finally, we're going to talk about some of the protests happening in Bangladesh from garment workers and their fight for higher wages and how they kind of are the backbone of the whole industry. So let's start with talking about luxury watch prices. So I may have mentioned this on the podcast a couple of times. I've definitely written about it, but um, it's really interesting to see that even as luxury watches are, you know, becoming, they're already a huge industry and always have been, but I feel like there's a lot of new people getting into it. There's a lot of buzz around luxury watches. And at the same time, over the last year, there's just been the the most expensive watches keep dropping in price. Um, Bloomberg has a platform called Subdial where they track uh, prices of Rolex and Patek Philippe and all those kinds of brands um, and, the, and the prices of them. Uh, last year, I think they had their peak April 2022, but then the last 12 months, they've just been dropping pretty regularly. They are down 48% from that peak in April. And Rolex and Patek Philippe both are sort of at their record low at the moment. Um, it's interesting. I think first, before we get into what might be causing that, I just want to say these are secondhand prices, but the secondhand market for watches is huge. It's like over half of the sales of new watches. It's like 50 something billion for new watches and then almost 30, I think, for secondhand. So it's a big, big part of the industry. Um, and I think it also is a kind of good indicator of what's happening in the industry too. So even though this only affects secondhand prices, it is a big deal kind of across the watch industry in general. Zofia, do you want me to give my thoughts on why this is happening first or do you want to go first? Oh no, you go first, definitely. Okay, so I'll I'll say mine, which is from what I understand from talking to some people in the watch industry, even though it feels like there's a lot of interest in watches right now and a lot of people are getting into collecting for the first time, because of that, because of that increased demand, uh, there's a lot of watches out there in the market circulating. Um, I think collectors who had a bunch of watches maybe just sitting in their uh, vaults or wherever people keep their very fancy watches saw all the demand and just started to kind of unload their collections out into the the ecosystem. And so it's, I think that even though there's an increase in demand, there's also been an even higher increase in supply and couple that with the fact that these watches don't just sell instantly. Um, they're expensive and even a super wealthy person probably takes a little bit of time before they make a purchase. There were two interesting data points from Subdial, which is the number of watches on the market is up 5% from August, and the time it takes for them to sell has gone up 8% since August. And each of those two changes are pretty small, like 5% is not that big. But when you combine them and, and have that happening over the course of months, you just leads to this buildup of watches, you know? So there's just a lot of supply is basically what it boils down to. That's my take on it. I do think that there's probably a bunch of other factors happening too, and we can get into some of them. But do you agree with that assessment, Sophia? And do you have any similar or different thoughts? Yeah, definitely. I've definitely observed that there's been this kind of, I guess, like oversaturation of secondhand watches. Like it's just, there's so many out there. And I do have some thoughts as to kind of why that's happening. Um, and I think my main point is just the fact that when people start to sense that you know, there's a kind of recession aspect, there's, you know, demand for luxury, they immediately put these watches up 
for sale because they think that, you know what, this is a good time to sell. Um, you know, there's going to be high interest. People will pay big prices for these. And I think if enough people do that, it just creates a market where everyone is out selling their watches, but maybe not as many people uh, buying them. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And the inflation and the kind of state of the economy was going to be my other big factor. Um, again, even to people who can afford a luxury watch and are buying them, I think at the very least, maybe spend a little longer or move a little slower on making those purchases, or they make one or two fewer purchases each year. So even the people who can still buy the watches, the the viable pool of buyers, I think are slowing down a little bit. So that's a big part of it. And uh, another factor is there have are so many places to sell watches and buy watches now. There's been a lot of, because of that increased demand and the, the sector kind of blowing up, um, you know, obviously there's Watchbox and Chrono24 and places that, that have been around for a while, um, but there's just a lot of movement in that space. There's a ton of new platforms like Bezel and Wrist Check and, you know, all these kinds of, and then, you know, general resale that does watches as well, like the Real Real. Um, there's just so many options, but because they're, that space is so competitive, like in, I remember beginning of this year, Chrono24 laid off like 13% of their staff right at the same time as like watches were still this really hot commodity. And I think it just had to do with the the volatility. Prices could drop, stuff could move slow, kind of very abruptly. So it's a really interesting sector for that reason. You know, it's just vulnerable to, you know, because it's a financial asset for a lot of people, they buy watches and they sell them. It's kind of vulnerable to the fluctuations of the economy the same way that like the stock market is. It's a good time for people like me who would love to buy one of these watches and normally can't. But like <laughs> if Rolex keeps going down in price, that's excellent. I, I like to hear that as a consumer. Yeah, definitely. I think that for Rolex, especially like the the kind of situation this year points to maybe a overestimation of demand. Because um, obviously there was a, a mass time where there was a severe like shortage of Rolex watches and like both new and secondhand ones. I think that really like increased the demand for them. And then afterwards they did release like a huge amount of watches. I think it kind of created like an overbalance in the other direction. Um, and then I think now they're kind of dealing with that. But I was going to also say, um, you know, in terms of resale, I don't know, obviously, because you've spoken more to the experts in this area, but is there still a lot of kind of purchasing, um, you know, watches from like retailers or from these stores directly for resale? Because obviously like that increases that quantity so much more as well. Yeah, I, I think there is. I mean, it's that is a watches are a category where, Unlike a, a luxury car or something, if you can buy a brand new Rolex straight from the unauthorized dealer, it instantly is more valuable basically the second you walk out of the store with it. You don't need to wait really for it to appreciate because Rolex, and Rolex makes more watches than some of the other Swiss brands, um, than like Patek Philippe or something, but Rolex is still pretty limited in their production in terms of the, like, the number of new watches they make each year. And the wait list is long and it's kind of a, a whole headache if you ever talk to a watch a watch person about uh, the difficulty of buying a brand new Rolex. Um, it's it's kind of a pain. You have to develop a relationship with the salespeople and everything. It's, it's a whole thing. And so if you can get one new, you could basically instantly sell it for more 
like that day. You don't even have to wait. So I'm not sure what the numbers are for for that. And, you know, the people who are explicitly buying a watch to instantly resell it. But the fact that you could immediately make money off of it tells me that there probably are people doing that out there. But that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot about that. That aspect of the industry, it's like kind of the sim- similar thing with sneakers where if something's super limited edition, you know, you could buy it and sell it that day and make a profit. Whereas uh, some watches, if you're buying a pre-owned watch and then hoping to resell it again and make profit, you kind of have to let it appreciate, you know? You buy this vintage watch, you wait a couple of years and then you sell it and you've made some money. But buying new watches, yeah, you could make a profit immediately. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like the the Rolex index instead of the lipstick index now. Everything's kind of measured by (laughs) measured in Rolexes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Cool. Let's move to our second topic. So Black Friday is coming up. Um, Holiday kind of stuff in general has already started. You know, this whole holiday sales period is now like four months or something. Um, It's a huge season for all retailers and, and all brands. You have been talking to some brands this week about some of the ways they are tackling Black Friday, especially sort of um, some counterintuitive or, or interesting like anti-Black Friday campaigns and ideas and stuff. I want to hear a little bit of a preview of the story you're working on, and then we can also just talk Black Friday in general too. But first off, what are, what are you hearing from some of the brands you're talking to? Yeah, so I think that I noticed quite recently that you know, when it comes to sustainable brands, which typically have kind of opted out of Black Friday, there's been like a variety of approaches this year that's almost slightly different, where it's not always um, the most kind of radical shutdown of all brands um, or brand activity, sorry. Um, And that's something that some brands are still doing for Black Friday. But especially for smaller brands that, you know, maybe have struggled this year, they're kind of focusing more on encouraging better habits and using marketing to almost like change the the mentality when shopping for sustainable products. So instead of thinking about, you know, just getting the best discounts at, you know, however many retailers and getting the mass amount of product for that, they're thinking, you know, just slow down maybe only buy one or two pieces instead of buying, um, you know, a whole host of things just because it's on discount. So I think it's it's showing a, a different kind of approach to Black Friday. Um, and I think that especially for these smaller brands, like doing something which is so, um, I guess, like radical where they kind of just close it all down doesn't essentially work for them because it is still a valuable kind of shopping holiday and something that, you know, a lot of customers buy into, especially at times when there is, you know, kind of a recession and um, people are more worried about, you know, value and product. Yeah, I wonder also if it's for some smaller brands, they have determined that it's it's maybe worth more in marketing or brand value to kind of signal that they are not a brand that's encouraging people to overconsume rather than you know, it's worth more to do that and to kind of like solidify in people's minds that they're a sustainable brand or a slow fashion brand or whatever it is, than it would be to kind of go all out and do the consume, consume, consume kind of style of Black Friday marketing that like a Walmart or something would do. Is that kind of part of it too? Do you think it's like a little bit of a brand building exercise to kind of position yourself as a brand that doesn't need to or doesn't want to partake in that kind of like maybe wasteful consumption craze definitely yeah I think that over the last couple of years it's almost kind of 
identified your brand. If you decide to opt out of Black Friday, it kind of says something about you. So it does kind of convey brand values. It can have, you know, a big impact on those value-led shoppers. So I think, yeah, for, for, for young brands who want loyal customers, like the moves that they make with that marketing are really important. And Black Friday is probably one of the best places or times to do it. I mean, I think the biggest question for the holiday season is, are people going to spend money? Um, just because, you know, inflation has been putting a damper on a lot of discretionary spending. We've seen it all all throughout the last year. But I wrote a story in October talking to some people about how Halloween, which is not, you know, the biggest sales holiday, but people do, it is a holiday and people spend around it. It's kind of a good barometer um, of how the rest of the season will will go and a couple of people were actually pretty um optimistic based on what they saw i think halloween sales were up like 34 percent from this year from the year before which is a pretty good sign um obviously we can't rule out that like nobody you know that that doesn't translate to a big holiday spending season but i think especially this year when everyone's kind of worried that the pressures of inflation are going to reduce some consumer spending across the board it, it seems like Halloween maybe indicated that that's not going to happen. Can you say any more about like some of the specific campaigns that the brands you've talked to have done? I I know, uh, is it Vivo Barefoot? Vivo Barefoot. I know that they they pitched me some kind of anti-Black Friday, maybe not anti, but alternative Black Friday ideas um, like a, a week ago. I think you spoke to them or are speaking to them at this point. So yeah, what are some of the ways they're kind of trying to suggest different ways of treating Black Friday. Yeah, I think for them, again, it's it's about kind of the messaging where they're looking at it more holistically as a brand. So including that marketing um, message from them is just, you know, don't necessarily use this as a discount shop. And I believe from them, they're just not discounting their products. And that's something that I think a lot of, um, there was a brand called Aline that I talked to um, on Friday who had the same kind of strategy. They want to ensure that customers know that the best price that they're getting throughout the year is the best price. Like there's no difference for them, whether that's, you know, a promotional holiday like Black Friday or a kind of regular shopping day. Like they want to make sure that that is basically the best price. Because I think that, you know, customers now are more savvy. They know that retailers and brands do overinflate their prices. Um, and, you know, at times it can even be a month ahead of Black Friday where prices will go up and then they'll go down more significantly because of that price raise. So I think that that shows that, you know, there's different strategies that consumers are looking at now to kind of almost outwit what is happening. Um and yeah, I'm I'm a little bit curious as to what's going to happen because even with the um, with the hol- uh, Halloween kind of increase, I think there'll be more of a focus on deal shopping this year. So especially around kind of Black Friday and possibly less spend towards the holidays, um, and even better or worse, I don't know. I don't think there'll be a mass increase in sales after the holidays either. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And last thing I'll say is that. I think the fact that it gets that holiday shopping season in general gets stretched out for like four months, at least to me, makes it feel a little less urgent because I'm like, I don't need to get these deals right now because I know they're going to be around for another like two months. Yeah, I think that's a kind of a, a, a continuing factor in the last couple of years of, of holiday retail. Our last topic I want to talk about, uh, it's actually something it's not necessarily 
that just happened this week. It's been going on for a couple of weeks, but I, I feel like it's important and I wanted to talk about it. The last couple of weeks, the thousands of garment workers who work in Bangladesh and who make so many of the clothes that kind of make the industry run um, have been striking for better wages. Um, Bangladeshi government offered an increase to a salary around of around $115 a month. Um, even in, I think, a lot of parts of the developing world, that's like poverty wages. That's very low. Um, so the various unions that represent the garment workers in Bangladesh have been striking for uh, an increase to $208 a month. Um, there has been violent conflict with the police over the last couple of weeks, several deaths and injuries. Um, it's an intense situation, but I wanted to talk about it because I feel like the garment workers are so like literally the most important people in the industry, the clothes would not exist without them. Um, and often it's a very unseen and unthought of part of the industry. So yeah, that's, that's my thought. Um, Zofia, what do you think of, you know, the situation there? And I don't even know what my question is, but I'm just throwing it over to you. What are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, obviously for, um, Bangladeshi workers, this is an incredibly important issue. And I think that, one of the things that's really important about Bangladesh is that it produces for some of the world's, you know, biggest brands. So Levi's, um, Zara's Inditex um, and H&M. So I think that, you know, you're talking about brands that have a huge scale of influence um, and yet it's not coming back down to um, its garment manufacturers, essentially. Um, and I think ever since the Rana Plaza collapse, I think that workers in Bangladesh have seen that there is an interest from the international community to grow and kind of de develop, um, you know, better working conditions for them. Um, and I think by making or putting Bangladeshi more on the map um, and kind of activating that union aspect because that's something that's been growing over there for the last couple of years is you know is there going to be a Bangladesh representation at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit which kind of talks about sustainability um because it's it's very common right now that you know workers um on at brands will not really be able to have access to talk about sustainability issues on an international stage i think that you know with strikes that are reported about globally, this is something that allows them to have more visibility to show that, you know, there is a crisis here that is in some ways, you know, very similar to what was happening with Rana Plaza. You know, people have died um, trying to fight for these wages now. Um, so I think that it's an issue that really needs to be solved and be, I guess, addressed by some of these brands that are producing there. Yeah. And so an, an interesting element of this and not to, you know, let the brands off the hook or anything, but a number of those big brands that do get their their products from Bangladesh have signed a letter and sent it to the prime minister of the country, um, basically saying to give in to the demands and, and agree to the $208 a month salary um, for, you know, purposes of not just, you know, the moral purpose of you know, it's the right thing to do, uh, but also to prevent further violence and also to prevent further closures of the factories. Um, the brands can't actually set those wages themselves because they don't employ the workers directly. They contract with the factories. So the factories can set those wages. Um, the brands, I think, I mean, obviously, even though they don't set the wages themselves, clearly have a ton of leverage over the factories. Um, 
they could go somewhere else. They could do, you know, all sorts of things to pressure them to agree to the workers' demands. There's actually, I think, been, you know, it's heartening to see a lot of um, Western fashion companies, not just brands, but also kind of like trade groups and, you know, organizations that represent the brands all kind of just saying that they should agree to the the workers' demands. Um like I said, not trying to like let the brands off the hook entirely. They can do more to to pressure uh, both the Bangladeshi government and the factories who employ the workers directly. But um, there there is some movement there, and I'm hoping uh, that there will be, you know, like you said, a speedy resolution. Um, it's I think a fact of the way this industry works and the way a lot of industries work that the most important people tend to be at the bottom of the ladder, like. When people think of the fashion industry, they think of designers and executives and retail workers and all those people are important, but literally none of it would matter if there were no clothes and the clothes are made by the garment workers. Um, so it's kind of maddening sometimes when you see that like the people literally making the clothes, the thing that the whole industry is about, are getting paid such low wages. So it is heartening again to see some of those brands, you know, at the very least offering their verbal support to to the workers demands yeah exactly and as you said like you know brands could be doing so much more to work with local governments to increase these wages like you know ownership of factories is something that some brands are already doing to make sure that you know payment of wages is done in the right way um i don't know if that's something that you know some of these factories um could be doing or some of these brands um that work for these factories could be doing but Essentially, it does seem like there is a pushback right now and a big kind of worker, almost like union force that is coming into play that really wasn't there before. It's something that, you know, has always kind of been kept away from the global fashion stage. And I think that this makes it very prominent um, and also very kind of pertinent because you're talking about, you know, even though at the moment it's only 150 factories out of the like, 3,500 that Bangladesh has is still a significant enough effect that I think a lot of these other factories will also be, you know, considering is this the right way to like operate if they are lower wages and does this need, you know, a countrywide kind of level of reform? Well, let's hope for a resolution and hopefully without any more uh, danger to anyone involved. That's all the time we have this week. Thank you to Zofia for being here. And thanks to our producer, Ben Elman, who worked on this episode. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to this. That helps us out so much. And don't forget to subscribe to The Glossy Podcast because you'll hear interviews with industry insiders every Wednesday and we can review episodes with me every Friday. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.